Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. There's a podcast I listen to called Talk Easy. It's hosted by Sam Fergozo. A few weeks ago, I was listening to Sam interview the actor Kihi Kwan, and things got pretty emotional. Ki just won an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor in Everything Everywhere All at Once. He was also in The Goonies and Indiana Jones as a kid. On Sam's podcast, he was talking about how he first came to the U.S. as a refugee from Vietnam. And I got on the plane for the first time in my life. And when I landed, there was my mom and my uh, and my siblings were waiting for us at the airport at LAX yeah and it was one of the uh, it was one of the greatest days of my life and the nine of us were together finally and that was that was in 1979 uh I haven't talked about this for 38 years so whatever feelings that I had, those emotions, I buried them for decades. Moments like this aren't uncommon on Sam's podcast. Before he was a host, he was a culture journalist and the creative director of a movie theater. And on the show, he talks to these huge stars, Ethan Hawke, Kate Blanchett, Janelle Monet, Lord. The thing I think he's really good at is that moment with Kihi Kwan. It's getting people who've given a million interviews to say something new. The challenge of that one is that it gets really emotional really quickly. Mm-hmm. And then it gets increasingly emotional yeah. to the point where you don't even know how you could keep talking. On a human level, what you'd like to do is give the person a hug, leave the microphones behind, and like go for a walk. But as someone who has to make 52 episodes a year, you have to figure out how to button this thing up. I really like Sam's style. So this week I invited him on for a relatively meta conversation about interviewing. Then remember when we asked you to send us boring topics and our challenge was to make them interesting? One of you called in about the life in the UK test, which is the test you need to pass to become a British citizen. So we took it on. We sent our producer Lulu Smith out to look into it. And what she found was kind of bonkers. One, the questions are so esoteric that most Brits don't know the answers. And two, some of the test is actually entirely inaccurate. This is FT Weekend. I'm Lila Raptopoulos. Sam, welcome to the show. It's such a pleasure to have you. It is a pleasure to be here. I am excited to have you on because um, you are a gifted interviewer, and I really love your show, Talk Easy. And first, I'm just curious about how you think of your show. Like, if we were to meet at a party, and I know nothing about you, and I find out you host a podcast, and I ask you, oh, what's your (laughs) podcast about? (laughs) 
So How do you, you answer that question? My, my worst nightmare. <laughs> my <laughs> worst nightmare. So once I get past my own anxiety around the question, I usually say, you know, it's an interview show where at the end of the interview, you'll actually be able to walk away from it saying, I learned something. Mm-hmm. You're not going to hear anyone probably as uh, insanely researched, some would say obsessively researched. Um, and also, I also will just say, just look at who's come on and just start with someone that you like. Mm-hmm. Also, a lot of the people that have come on the show, you know, Margaret Atwood or... Questlove or David Byrne or Natasha Leone most recently, mm-hmm. they've done a lot of interviews. Yeah. So it, it's kind of hard for me to be like, it's an interview show with people that you've also heard on other interview shows. <laughs> I keep thinking of this word life review. Um, my godmother's a therapist and she works exclusively with old people, like people in their 90s. And she does the style of therapy with them called life review. And I don't think that interviewing and therapy are the same. Um, but I really like that framing of like life that. review. And I think you're pretty good at that. Like, I think the through line to me is that, like, people sort of have a chance to step out of their day to day and be eased into this place where they, like, trust you to reflect on their lives. Uh-huh. Well, that, that's pretty good. I, I, I think we'll just kind of roll with that. I like it. Sam is in his late 20s, and he lives in L.A., and as you can probably hear, he can be a little self-ironic about where he's ended up. But what makes Sam unique is that he's made this happen almost entirely on his own. Before Talk Easy got picked up by a production company, Pushkin, he made the show independently for years. He started it while he was still in college. And even then, he was booking really big names. Well, I had done a lot of interviews for a whole bunch of publications, like... Vanity Fair and Vice, The Atlantic. And those had gone, some of them went pretty well. Mm-hmm. But yeah, come 2016, I um, was leaving this job as a creative director at the Roxy in San Francisco, which, which is this great old um, California institution. And part of the job of being a creative director is I had to do all these onstage um, Q&A's afterward. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, I'm not really good at the job of the creative director. Like, I wasn't very good at it. But I was pretty good at doing the Q&A's afterward. So from there, it seemed like the most natural um, evolution of both the onstage Q&A work and, and then the, the print interview work. You, you do sort of... Um as you said, some would say obsessive level, <laughs> deep research, a lot of deep research oh, yes, on yes, people. Yes. Often you uh-huh. read quotes they've said back to them um, and have them respond. <laughs> um, I'd kind of like to know what is the sort of experience you're structuring in that room in that hour? Like, what are you chasing? What are you building up to? Yeah, I think I go in with a pretty clear structure of how I think the hour should go. Mm-hmm. Um, usually as a first act, second act, third act, if we have time, a little epilogue, mm-hmm. but basically by like the 20 minute mark, you should get to something that's going to like turn the interview. 
So for instance, on a recent episode with Natasha Leone, the mm-hmm. first eight to 10 minutes is about Poker Face, like her new show. Mm-hmm. And, and then around the 15 minute mark, there's a turn or pivot into the past. Mm-hmm. And then from there, you're telling some story that's going to bring you back to the present, at least mm-hmm. for me. So I like to have bookends. Then there has to be like a dismount, come down period. And that's always the hardest part. Um, and so you have to landing figure out what, yeah, dismount. landing the plane. Yeah, how do you land yeah. the plane? And sometimes, you know, and sometimes that's easy to do. And sometimes there's like a lot of turbulence. Yeah. <laughs> I was curious to hear about an interview that Sam's done recently that he felt really good about. And he chose one with Jonathan Majors who starred in Lovecraft Country and The Last Black Man in San Francisco. He's also in the new Creed movie. And I think that's that's an episode where there's, um, we get into stuff about childhood and, and, and um, ambition and trauma around a, a whole host of issues. And then in that last five minutes, there's an element where he tells us about this dream he has, this recurring dream It's a mixture of the country where we grew up and the city where we lived. And there's a red balloon. It's massive. It is both the horizon and the sun. And we're looking at it. And the biggest thing about a dream, for anyone who's done dream analysis, they always ask you, okay, oh, that's great. All that symbolism is there. But how do you feel in the dream? And how do you? (laughs) Sitting there next to my baby brother, seeing where we grew up and where we lived. And then now seeing the red balloon, which now in this moment I can say is probably my future life. There is a a deep calm between us and a safety. And it's so, so profoundly moving that you can't possibly ask anything else after that. (laughs) Like, you'd have to be an idiot Mm -hmm. to be like, well, so, Jonathan, Creed 3? Like, no, like, it's over. It's over. Yeah. I often leave these feeling, it's better than I expected. And what's good about it are things I couldn't have foreseen. I find it, uh, I find that different guests come to interviews in very different ways. Um, How do you mean? Many are media trained. So they're used to telling their stories a lot. Um, with some, you feel them telling the same story you know they've told a million times. Sometimes you do research and I've heard them tell the story a million times. Sometimes you need that. I know what you mean, yes. People, especially public figures, come in with a very uh, well-workshopped story of their life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And my job is to say, I've heard the story Mm-hmm. Because I've listened to everything you've done. I've read every interview you've been part of. And we're going to try to tell a different story today. Mm-hmm. And I think by by supplying the basic facts of their life, by offering a quote, like you mentioned that, by offering a quote, in the face of that, they actually have to start saying something else. Yeah. Because they can't, they can't just be like, oh, that's a good quote. Let me just say it again. Right. <laughs> like, like they, they have to do something else. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, it's interesting. It like puts you in a project together. Yeah, ideally. Sam calls his show a car ride, 
where he owns the car, but he isn't driving. So occasionally, if a guest wants to take a different route, he has to be along for the ride. At times, I find you to be, I mean, this is a compliment, an insistent passenger. <laughs> um, and I'm yeah. thinking about a conversation of yours that I really liked with Kara Swisher, the sort of iconically <laughs> confident tech journalist who uh-huh. uh, the Silicon Valley CEOs are a little bit afraid of. And um, you two had exceptionally different energy, kind of opposite ends of the spectrum. And yes. uh, she was moving so fast when she was talking that she was actually texting during the interview. Yes. And at one point you said, are you, are you texting? Yes. Are you texting? You were writing back during the interview? To my children? Yes. I'm sorry. He, they rate higher than you do. I don't want to rate above them. No, that's right. My son had a question about dinner. He's 6'4 and he needs food. So I have to always feed him or else he'll eat me. I don't respond well to people doing a bad job. Mm-hmm. Period. And so in that interview, I, I respect Kara Swisher enormously. But I found that if she's going to text during an interview, then I'm going to let the listeners know that she is texting. And it wasn't texting once. There was, I, by the time I called it out, she had written a little novel. Like it was, it wasn't like, oh, I, I'm not like that. Mm-hmm. I'm not that pushy. I kind of think she was just being Kara Swisher. Yeah, I thought it was a good representation of her. <laughs> I didn't take it personally. Yeah. And I thought, this is actually going to be funny. I'm going to just kind of Kara Swisher, Kara Swisher. <laughs> yeah. And, and also, although Kara and I have very different styles, we're actually after a lot of the same things. We want people to be honest. Mm-hmm. We want people to be vulnerable and forthright. Mm-hmm. We want people to not be full of shit. I just find that my way works for me. Yeah. That that setting a space that is safe and without judgment and honest and open hearted is how I think people are more willing and open to share themselves. I'm curious how you think what makes a good listener? How can we be better listeners? I don't know if you can teach that. And I know there are couples therapists that will disagree with me, but I think you got to be invested in people to want to hear their stories. So I think it's less about listening and more about finding ways and reasons to be invested in other people. Mm-hmm. When it comes to listening, you got to find your entry point in. You have to find the reasons that will make you care and show up and, and stay interested. Mm-hmm. Sam, this was so interesting. It was such a pleasure. Thanks so much for being on the show. The pleasure was all mine. Sam's show, Talk Easy, is produced by Pushkin. They also produce a sister show of ours at the FT, Hot Money. I've put links to a few episodes that I really like in the show notes. A few months ago, we asked our listeners to join us in a challenge in the spirit of the show. You send us a topic that you think is boring, and we're going to look into it and prove to you that it's not. The submissions were great. They were things like, why are two wheels more fun than four wheels? And who invented the paper plate? We even did one on supermarket layouts. Today, we bring you the next installment. It's a British topic. So we sent our London-based producer, Lulu Smith, out to investigate. A while ago, we got this message from Kim Chibata in London. 
when you have to get your citizenship in the UK, you're required to take a written test and the questions feel really random. So why, to be a citizen of the UK, do you need to know the history of who won Olympics or the food of each of the nations? It's a good question. And Kim actually isn't the only person asking it. I often call the, the test the test for British citizenship that few British citizens can pass. That's Dr. Tom Brooks. He's a law professor who's been pushing for a reform of the citizenship test. As I was researching this story, I found lots of voices in favour of reform from all walks of life. Here's comedian Sakisa performing on the BBC comedy show Live at the Apollo. In case anyone wants to get a British passport, I'm going to tell you how you get one. You've got to do this thing called a Life for the UK test. Anyone heard of it? Right, if you've never heard of it, please look online. It is a very bad pub quiz. (laughs) And I know this because I attempted to do it four times, being originally from Barbados, and I failed it four times. And that is interesting for me because I'm an immigration lawyer. (laughs) This is to say that the Life in the UK test has literally become a joke on national television. But I wanted to know what had prompted Kim to send it as a suggestion for a boring topic. So I called her up. She said that she took the test with her husband a few years ago. As we began to study for the test, the questions ranged from, like, history questions, you know, about the former kings and queens, to what what, what time are pubs open on Sundays... (laughs) That is an important one. It is actually quite important. (laughs) And as I was studying, I'd often walk out of my office and ask my British colleagues the questions. And I'd say 50-50 whether they could actually know the answers. Kim sort of had fun studying for the test. She's a US citizen and the stakes didn't feel too high. Probably didn't hit me on that, you know, it was more than an administrative task. It was actually like becoming a citizen of a different country. Mm-hmm. until the ceremony. But I would say for those people that really would do anything to come to the UK, I think about for them, it doesn't feel like an administrative task. It feels like it's like a life-saving, life-altering action. The thing about this test is that it can change the course of somebody's life. But it feels obscure and outdated. To figure out what's going on with it, I called up Tom, whom you heard earlier. Not only is he a law professor, he's actually taken the test himself. So first I wanted to know, what exactly is the test? It's 24 multiple choice questions answered over 45 minutes. And you have to get 18 or more of these right. Do you need to get more than 70% uh, right? And it costs 50 pounds a pop. Mm. Um, So that's effectively what it is. And you show up at uh, basically a test center get logged into a computer and start clicking away with your mouse and best of luck. When the test was first introduced back in 2002, it was meant to help immigrants integrate into British society. And so you might expect certain things to be in it. When are the bank holidays? How do you file your taxes? A bit of that's in there, but a lot of it isn't. Instead, there are loads of random questions like how tall is the London eye in feet? What was the UK population in 1901? And what should you do if you spill beer on someone in a pub? The answer to that one, by the way, isn't buy them a drink, 
It's just apologise. I would be interested to kind of hear what some of the questions that you encountered are. And obviously I'm I'm especially interested in the most absurd ones um, because I've, yeah, I think it's, <laughs> it can be quite baffling to read um, and hear a reports of people who've taken the test. Oh, there's, there's lots of uh, baffling things. I mean, like a lot of people, I went online, uh, found a, some version that claimed to be a version of the, of the test, failed it. Uh, like <laughs> many, many of the British citizens I've come to know, you know, you wanted quirky. I can, if I may, yes. I'll give you a couple of quirky, quick things. Please. One thing that's odd is, you know, how many people out there know the name of the person who started the first curry house? The name of the person who started the first curry house is Sheikh Dean Muhammad. But you need to know way more than just that. You need to know that he set up the first curry house. You need to know that its name was the Hindu Stain um, Coffee House. You need to know it was on George Street, London. It was the only non-royal who has a spouse's name you need to know. And that you need to know <laughs> that they eloped um, and that she was, quote, an Irish girl um, when they eloped uh, in Ireland. And then he came back. <laughs> Um, to Britain. This is all hugely important to know to be a British citizen. As Tom was studying, he was curious as to whether his students, who are experts in many of the topics in this test, could answer the questions as well. To his surprise, they got a lot wrong. And that led him to find another problem. When I would ask them the question about how many MPs there were in Parliament, I was struck that all these politics students I was coming across, you know, none seemed to know the answer. And then I found out it was because none of the options in the test book were correct. Um, that the right. Parliament had changed the number. And that made me think, hang on a second, how many other questions here have a correct answer that is factually untrue? And I found that there was quite a few, not all because there was someone sat in the home office looking to make uh, the lives of me and other people miserable. Uh, but often a lot of the errors are because things have, have gone out of date. Tom says that he ordered the most recent print version of the Life in the UK test, stamped only a couple of months ago. And when it arrived, it had a large picture of the Queen labelled as head of state. As we all know, King Charles became the head of state after the Queen passed away last September. So it seems kind of like there are two problems. There's a test that nobody's actually bothering to check or update. And then there's also just the fact that the test in itself is a kind of trivia game, not a genuine set of questions about civic society or like practical things that can help. Yeah, I think that's right. So, I mean, I think one of the biggest problems isn't just that the test book uh, goes out of date and no one from the government seems to know or frankly care um, that it has. It's it's also an impractical um, guide to living in the UK. You do not need to know how to call the police, how to report a crime, or how to register with a GP. So kind of fundamentals of kind of daily life that many people might have, especially those who say have, have families, um, that uh, is, is missing. How did the test get this way? Well, a few reasons. Tom says that the parts that are blatantly wrong are in there because it's just not getting updated fast enough. It's a question of resources. But the bigger issue may be that, as a society, we Brits just haven't decided what's important about being British. Because the test actually started out being more practical. But then the test makers made a survey, and everyone had a different idea of what was British. So the easier thing was to go more obscure. 
And instead of being a bridge for new immigrants to their new identity, the test has become a pub quiz. Tom, is there an argument that we don't need citizenship tests in the first place? I mean, like, is this a good idea gone wrong? Or should we just be doing something else entirely? I mean, it seems to me that if you've lived somewhere for like 10 years, then do you really need to prove that you belong there? Like, surely you know enough about the culture already to qualify as British. An excellent point. An excellent point. And I mean, I think, you know, so effectively where, where I'm going is, is, is right here. That if you wanted to, to, uh, use a basis for keeping people out for some reason, you don't need to go through the bother of writing a book that's 180 pages, has three, about 3,000 facts in it, including 278 dates, uh, in order to do that. Having it like this seems inefficient. It seems a, a real waste of, of energy and time. It's turned a lot of people off. It, it, if anything, it's made a lot of folks um, feel further. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, you, you, are, you raise a good point. This is said to me um, a few times by people that, you know, isn't the right test of citizenship, someone's eligibility to be citizen, that they have paid their taxes without breaching the law um, and have been, a, have been a good neighbor for a period of time. What more might we want? Um, yeah. Um, from from that, and isn't that a sign that someone has um, kind of done all the things and integrated in the ways that we want to do? And I think there's a strong argument for it. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on the show. This is an absolute pleasure. A great joy. Thank you. That's the show this week. Thank you for listening to FT Weekend, the life and arts podcast of the Financial Times. If this is your first time listening, it's nice to meet you. You should come check us out. Just search FT Weekend wherever you listen to podcasts. There are links to everything we mentioned today in the show notes, alongside a special discount for an FT subscription. And we love hearing from you. You can email us at ftweekendpodcast at ft.com. The show is on Twitter at FT Weekend Pod, and I am on Instagram and Twitter at Lila Rap. I ask a lot of behind the scenes questions that feed into the show on my Instagram. I am Lila Raptopoulos, and here's my talented team Katya Kamkova is our senior producer, Lulu Smith is our producer, Molly Nugent is our contributing producer. Our sound engineers are Breen Turner and Sam Javinko, with original music by Metaphor Music. Topher Forges is our executive producer and our global head of audio is Cheryl Brumley. Have a lovely weekend and we'll find each other again next week. <laughs>